Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and this is the Centered From Reality podcast. It's Friday. I hope everyone had a great week. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited to get into the weekend. You know, it's been one of those weeks. It's kind of felt like forever. I remember I was in class on Wednesday, and I slept just awfully the night before, and I'm going, God, it's only Wednesday. Damn. But anyways, we're here. So here the weather's been uncharacteristically cool for this time of year, and by cool, I mean mid-70s, which obviously... Where I grew up, that's that's warm, but here, I mean, God, it's mid-70s is amazing because, I mean, the humidity is at least over 80% most of the time, so I will take it. It's uh, better for sleeping. It's better for running. Yeah, one, one positive for sure. I want to talk about a lot of things today, though, ranging from rising threats to the FBI, how rainwater is now deemed toxic to drink, which is something I never really thought about, and also why... The world is somewhat preparing for the waning days of American hegemony and what the pride before the fall actually looks like. I also want to look into Chinese power and how some people actually think China may be peaking or even after its peak and could start lashing out because of that. And that did seem to happen with countries like Japan during World War II. And one has to wonder if China maybe thinks the U.S. is waning whether this is a window of opportunity to lash out in places like Taiwan. So a lot of interesting stuff today. Before I get into everything, Kenya actually had its presidential elections this week, which are quite consequential. I think they happened yesterday, I want to say, but don't quote me on that. Right now, The Economist has noted that the race appears too close to call. It is between William Ruto, the deputy president, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Raila Odinja, an opposition leader who's running for his fifth time. Uh, That's always fun. And Mr. Odinja sought to assemble kind of this old-fashioned ethnic coalition. I believe he's kind of a populist. And Mr. Ruto made promises to Kenya's have-nots. No, sorry, sorry, Mr. Ruto's the populist from what I've gathered. And I'm not going to do too much more on that today just because I don't really have enough to talk about, but maybe next week we'll... We'll do a little more of a deep dive into that because Kenya is a very important country in Africa and it's a very important election. So yeah, lots, lots happening in that part of the world as well. And, but moving on, let's start with rainwater, something I usually don't cover on podcasts. This is not like a science or environmental podcast, but today we're going to move into that. So apparently nothing is sacred anymore, <laughs> lucky us, because according to numerous studies, Atmospheric levels of toxic forever chemicals are so high that rainwater everywhere contains amounts that are unsafe for uh, long-term human consumption, according to safety guidelines. And notice it is long-term consumption, so it's not like if you get rainwater in your mouth, you're going to just, you know, die or something. So yeah, don't worry about that, but it's not great news. And first off, I really love the name forever chemicals. Makes you just feel warm and fuzzy inside. But anyways, these uh, forever chemicals are called PFAs. I'm not going to pronounce the word. I'm going to save myself the humiliation. But they are pretty much found in a lot of things, or I guess the key word is were found in a lot of things, thank God. But they are water-resistant chemicals. You can find them in carpets and bags, etc. It's the plastic that used to be in the inside of popcorn bags. They were found in shampoos, hairsprays, soaps. Lots of, lots of daily things, and from what I've gathered, they have banned them in a lot of countries, so that's always good, but they're pretty much in the water everywhere, and also the rainwater, and according to Environmental Science and Technology Magazine, 
Scientists led by Ian Cousins, a professor of environmental science at Stockholm University, have conducted field tests of four kinds of PFAs and analyzed countless other measurements. The team now warns in quotes here that even in these remote and sparsely populated regions, such as Antarctica and the Tibetan Plateau, the most stringent PFA guidelines are exceeded. And I think that's pretty wild that even in like Antarctica, they're finding these because it shows how abundant they are. And so it tells me that even if a lot of places have banned them, it's probably not early enough. And it shows that, yeah, they are forever chemicals. Because if we've been using them for 50 years or whatever, it shows they haven't gone away even if we ban them. So it's not promising. And also, it's obviously not just in rainwater. It's also in groundwater, in probably in drinking water, I would assume. And according to a Vice article I was reading, Exposure to these chemicals is in the short term bad for the immune system, though enough studies haven't been done in the long term, so that always makes you feel good as well. Of course, while most countries have banned these, I, from what I've gathered, China has not banned the four main types, which is not particularly surprising. But yeah, so if you're out and you need to drink rainwater, I would say probably don't. Probably not a great idea, which again is, is kind of disappointing. I, I guess when you think of rain, you don't think of toxic to drink over time. Not something you always think of off the bat. But, you know, nothing really surprises any, surprises me anymore. Nothing's sacred, so makes sense. Uh, anyways, uh, we'll move on, though, from that. Not much else I can really say. I'm not a, not a scientist, so that's kind of the it. Anyways, uh, Wednesday I talked about the growing attacks from GOP leaders and the right-wing media on the FBI and pretty much the idea that Trump is above the law no matter what. And guess what? Well, things are escalating uh, because there has been a rise in threats and violence towards law enforcement. Again, I truly believe this is another feature of kind of the growing fascist rhetoric and the growing fascist tendencies in this country. And I, I'm not being hyperbolic because fascism, in my opinion, creates a permission structure to be violent to be an asshole, whatever you want to say. And anyways, uh, first off, I would just say that uh, what happened to back the blue? You know, I see a lot of thin blue lines on people's cars and t-shirts. Uh, I, I assume those are mainly Trump supporters and Republicans. But uh, yeah, that thin blue line is getting harder and harder to see. That's all I can say because, let's see, it was yesterday... Uh, yeah, yeah. yesterday, Thursday, there was an armed man who tried to enter the FBI field office in Cincinnati, Ohio. According to CNN here in quotes, an armed man suspected of trying to breach the FBI's Cincinnati field office Thursday was killed after an hours-long standoff with law enforcement. And it goes on to say the man was believed to have a nail gun and an assault-style rifle. Uh, sounds like a real nice fellow. Fun afternoon. Um, that sounds scary, honestly. And according to some reports, the man referenced a call to arms after the raid on Mar-a-Lago. Not, not good. And, you know, in a weird sense, to me at least, this sounds a lot like January 6th all over again. Obviously not on the scale. It's not one massive event. But it's, again, elites, politicians, media figures getting the crowd all riled up. And then they watch the chaos from their ivory tower. This is really what it seems like to me all over again. I've heard a lot of experts on civil conflicts and internal divisions just discuss how January 6th was not a one-off event. You know, some people thought, oh, this was just this 
one-off event. We're never going to see something quite as crazy again. But a lot of people think this is just the beginning of a new era of political conflict, division, decentralized issues. And, you know, when you see things like this, someone going to the FBI to, to I guess, attack and kill FBI agents, I mean... First off, you have to be so stupid. I mean, that place is probably armed to the teeth. Uh, it was no Uvalde there. Uh, they clearly responded quickly to this guy. Um, not to be morbid, but, you know, I guess when it's the FBI's headquarters or field office, police are a little bit quicker to react. But anyways, um, they're also finding, that, uh, finding out that this guy who tried to attack the field office was involved in other events. Speaking of January 6th, the National Review has an article from this morning that discusses how this guy is believed to have been present at the Capitol during January 6th. And the article discusses how the man was angered by the raid and, in quotes, seemed very aggregated by the incident on social media, expressing some words of militancy on Trump's platform Truth Social the day after. His account reportedly called on people to prepare for combat and kill FBI agents on site. And... I would imagine, maybe I'll have to go on Truth Social later, later and see, but I would imagine this is growing rhetoric through the internet, um, and that terrifies me. The National Review also discusses how the FBI has mentioned that there has been an increase in social media threats to bureau personnel and facilities, vaguely blaming recent media reporting on FBI investigative activity. And this is not surprising. It's inevitable when... You have people like little Marco Rubio calling this um, communist banana republic activity, not what happens in democracies. Or you have Newt Gingrich saying the FBI planted evidence or Marjorie Taylor Greene calling to defund the FBI. It's, it's despicable. And of course, this is going to happen. And of course, no one will be held accountable. And here we go in circles again and again and again. And it... Honestly, like Merrick Garland had a good press conference. I watched some of it yesterday. He clarified the facts. He did not actually seem, from, from at least my interpretation, he did not seem thrilled about how this was actually carried out, the raid on Mar-a-Lago, I mean. But then, of course, today it comes out that it looks like this raid was over documents involving something involving nuclear weapons, um, which is not, it doesn't leave you promising or feeling too good about yourself, to, to say the least, but... At least from early reports from what I'm seeing, the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago residents for classified nuclear documents, according to the Washington Post. And look, I mean, it's pretty easy to know that when you're president and you leave office, you cannot take anything with you. It's pretty common sense. I think the FBI tried to do the right thing here. Obviously, it was not a good look, I don't think. And I'm sure Merrick Garland wished it was a little more under under the table or low radar, but it wasn't. It happened. And look, I like to use Oakham's razor for this scenario. Is this a giant FBI plot by the director who Trump literally appointed? Or is it that Trump is not the brightest guy and thought he could take presidential records with him and the FBI want them back legally? I think it's probably the, the second one there. And also, apparently Trump had been subpoenaed. They'd already asked him for documents and he wasn't complying. So like, what do you do? You know, what do you do here? The last thing I'll say on this topic is that apparently no one um, in the Ohio GOP at this time has condemned the attack on the field office or attempted attack on the field office. I bet if they were asked, they would say something milquetoast, try to apologize or, you know, send their thoughts and prayers, but then also defend this. This is just um, an insane precedent and a dangerous one at that. And 
I just say shame on everyone from Kevin McCarthy to Newt Gingrich to Marco Rubio to everyone who's calling this a banana republic and talking about planted evidence. Banana republics don't hold leaders accountable. The DOJ is trying to hold Trump accountable. This is not the same thing, and people need to get that through their heads. It's, it's pretty wild. Anyways, uh, moving on. The main thing I want to talk about today is reports out of Europe and just in general and by a lot of political scientists, foreign policy experts, etc., that there is growing, I don't know if recognition, um, growing awareness, I guess you could say, around the world that the United States is waning. And it's time to kind of prepare for a world where certain places cannot rely on us for everything anymore. So I want to start by talking about that. And then I also want to look at China, who could have already peaked. We've discussed the idea, I think it was on the old podcast, but I'll, I'll just refresh. Is we've discussed the idea of Thucydides, sorry, I always stumble over that word, Thucydides trap, which was a theory put forth by the political scientist Graham Allison. And it's basically about how a clash between a rising superpower and the waning superpower inevitably leads to war. It came out of the Peloponnesian War in ancient Greece, and Allison, who I believe writes for Harvard, or works at Harvard, he's a really good political scientist, provided interesting studies about how over the last 500 years or so, whenever there's changes in hegemonic power dynamics, this does lead to war, and it seemed almost like 80% of the time this happened. Now, the nuclear era is a little bit different because war is really not worth it, but up, up until the nuclear era, it was almost inevitable that the rising superpower and the waning superpower ended up having some sort of conflict. But the question with the U.S. and China is a little bit different. In this modern world, what if both the rising superpower and the waning one are actually both already peaked and in the decline, or at least going in that direction? Could that lead to a conflict as well is kind of my question, because it looks like we're almost in an inverse Thucydides trap. And China, from everything I've gathered, is at least peaked or peaking and could be plateauing soon. And obviously the U.S. is having a lot of internal division and uh, I guess you could say legitimacy issues around the world. So to start, I will caveat with this what I am assume most of you are thinking or ready to ask me because it's hard to really imagine that the United States is waiting right now because, you know, we're currently leading a huge aid effort in Ukraine we are coordinating funds and arms to Ukraine and the rest of Europe and our allies are basically following our lead. We also just took out a wanted terrorist and are still a rich and powerful nation on paper especially. And in this case, I think all of the above is true, but two things can be true at once and I think they are in this case. So basically there's an idea of relative peace and stability in the West that occurred after World War II. And it's kind of known as Pax Americana, American peace. I guess Pax Latin Americana, obviously you know what that means. And Pax Americana is applied to the concept of relative peace in the Western Hemisphere and later in the world after 1945. And basically this concept finds that peace and stability occurred when the United States became the world's dominant economic and military power. A lot of stability was created. And it seems like, though, that has been true for a long time. Apparently, a lot of top European officials are worried about America's unwinding. And I don't think the withdrawal from Afghanistan left anyone feeling too comfortable. I don't think the Trump years have left anyone feeling comfortable. And I think all the escalating tensions between Taiwan and China have a lot of people not feeling comfortable. And apparently, in the last decade, fears have grown enough that a lot of European officials actually worry about a sudden collapse instead of a gradual decline. 
And I think the Trump era, like I've said, really instilled this idea in the minds of many Europeans. I do think it's a bit hyperbolic to say a sudden collapse, but we'll, enter we'll entertain the idea for a few minutes. Uh, because in an article I read, it was an there was an interview with a guy, Michel Duclos. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, I just saw it in writing. And it's uh, or he is a former French ambassador to Syria who remains well-connected within Europe's diplomatic network. And he says that Europeans cannot stop talking about a sudden American fall. An Atlantic article called uh, What America's Great Unwinding Would Mean for the World also kind of echoes this. The article writes in quotes, and uh, bear with me, I think it's kind of interesting. It says, When I spoke with officials, diplomats, politicians, and aides in Britain and Europe over the past few weeks, the same message came back. It's weighing on people's minds, big time. One senior European official told me, speaking like most of those I interviewed on condition of anonymity to, to freely discuss their concerns. He said from the outside of the U.S., many now see in America only relentless mass shootings, political dysfunction, social division, and the looming presence of Donald Trump. All of this seems to add up in the collective imagination to an impressive of a country on the brink, meeting all the conditions for a descent into civil unrest. And, uh, I mean... This also kind of echoes a book from China that was published, I think it's out of publishing now, um, that talks about how the U.S. would eventually fall due to internal conflict and civil unrest. And I mean, when you, when you zoom out, it's kind of hard to disagree with some of this. I mean, you see everything from January 6th, two shootings to us, having the inability to really have a lot of bipartisan agreements on anything. Like, it does seem like we're in kind of the, the final days of Rome, for sure. And... It's important to understand why Europe worries about this, and it really makes sense. So Europe is highly dependent on everyone, which is, I think, I mean, that's a whole other episode. But, I mean, down the road, Europe's going to need to find a way to be a little more self-reliant, I think, because the war in Ukraine has shown the issues with this because it relies on fuel for, from Russia, the United States for goods and security, and it relies on China for trade. And... I think Europe tried to make deals with China and Russia mainly because they are afraid of losing American aid if something were to happen in the United States. But the invasion of Ukraine has pushed Europe right back into the hands of the United States. And the region is really caught in a pickle, to be honest, because, like I said, they were trying to diversify and have different trading partners. But when you kind of have China and Russia on one side of this and the United States and our allies on the other, Europe has kind of been pushed back to us. And... That doesn't really bode well for them in the long run, I think. And The Economist, or sorry, no, The Atlantic brings this up. It reads, uh, This, then, is the difficult situation of America's protectorates today. Worried about the decline of the U.S., much of the America-led world has clung even more tightly to Washington than before. In Asia, the U.S. remains the only power capable of balancing against China's bid for regional hegemony. In Europe, something similar is true with regard to Russia. And I think this is a good point and does highlight why, why this fall may not be quick, at least, because there is such a broad system around the world. And our military is so intertwined with a lot of our allies around the world that it's not like the fall could be quick. I just don't believe that. I, I once saw a quote, I forget where, so I'm probably butchering it, but it said something like American power is a strong vaccination against its internal division. But then I guess on that note, one would also say, what if the vaccine stops working? The world would be in chaos. But but it is true. I mean, even as chaotic as Trump is, one president really can't unravel our foreign infrastructure just because we have such a military industrial complex. 
we're so connected around the world. Even for as much as Trump did, he couldn't ruin everything. He tried, he tried, but he, he wasn't able to do that much, to be honest. And so I think that's the argument maybe against the sudden, sudden collapse. But again, you know, if you have maybe like whatever's coming next in 2024, who knows? You know what I mean? And one has to wonder what Europe is going to do because they have stalled deals with China. Russia's clearly not a good partner. And the United States could back out of agreements if Trump's back in office. So, and then there's also the issue internally of Germany seems to be clashing with a lot of Southern Europe. Now Italy is calling out Germany, I was reading. Britain's no longer in the EU. There's a lot of issues involving that as well. So obviously things are not going to be changing overnight. But, you know, I mean, we have escalating tensions between the United States and Iran. Iran will no longer come to the table with us after we pulled out under Trump of the Iran nuclear deal. A lot of the countries don't take us seriously on climate change after we pulled out of the Paris Agreement. There's now even reports that the Taiwanese, or not the Taiwanese, the Chinese will not even pick up the phone when Secretary of Defense Austin was trying to call them during their exercises last week. So there seems to be a little bit of fracturing, I guess, in the global fear or the ability we have for other countries to listen to us. We're not a laughing stock. I, I hate when people say we're a laughing stock because we are not a laughing stock. But I think we are, I would say our respect around the world is diminishing. And part of having influence and power is respect. Now again, like I said at the top of this, we've recently just killed one of the top terrorists in the world. We are pretty much leading the efforts in Ukraine. And Ukraine is doing much better than expected um, with a lot of thanks to the weapons we've provided them. We still have the biggest economy in the world. And no one can beat us in innovation, in my opinion. But I don't know. In 10 years, if we're on track for what we've been doing, I don't know. We, we also just have... We have issues with, let's just say, inequality. It's atrocious. Partisanship is almost at the past of no return. Or not the past, the point of no return. Sorry, it's Friday. And uh, people are losing faith in elections. And... Our pendulum-like system means that certainty is almost difficult to promise to our allies. So I guess the question is, what happens as we look into the abyss? Does it look back at us? Or do we see the light and maybe step up? I just feel like we have such a managerial system also in the United States that we don't really do anything bold or fast like we used to. Everything's kind of about consistency. And that consistency, I think, could hurt us going forward. Now, moving over to China for a second, I don't know if things have really gone that great in the last, like, several months, I guess you could say. It's funny. Before I started recording this, I was watching a video on YouTube that I think it was in Shanghai. Don't quote me on that, but I think it was in Shanghai. And it was a video of just a giant group of people sprinting out of a door to an office building. And apparently, according to reports, one person tested positive for COVID in the entire area. And all these people were running to get away from getting tested because if they tested positive, I guess they might have to go quarantine in camps for two weeks. Like China has taken COVID so seriously that their population has no herd immunity. Their vaccine doesn't work. 
And so people are just being basically controlled by the government. And it's not good for anybody. People are getting angry. Even my Chinese friends here in Chicago that I talked to, they think it's insane. And look, like, I don't know how much longer this lasts because I was reading an NPR article from back in July and I wrote it down because it was interesting. It says China's economy contracted in the three months ending in June compared with the previous quarter after Shanghai and other cities shut down to fight coronavirus outbreaks. The world's second largest economy shrank by about 3%, down from the January-March period's already weak 1.4%. And the, um, the World Bank also put out this statement a couple weeks ago, saying after a strong start in early 2022, the largest COVID-19 wave in two years has disrupted China's uh, growth normalization. We project real GDP growth to slow sharply to 4.3% in 2022, 0.8 percentage points lower than expected in the December China economic update. And these numbers have kind of just been going on all over the place in China. And yeah, you would probably be worried if you were China going like, how do we grow? And, you know, obviously they are trying to diversify their economy into Africa. They really want Africa to be an important part of their influence, I guess, if you want to call it that. But it's just not really promising when you think about that. And also, they've had a housing crisis. One of their biggest companies that's kind of like a uh, kind of like a BlackRock, it's also struggling. A lot of people wonder if there's a housing bubble that's going to be bursting in China soon. There's a lot of questions to be had. And so I think some of the questions that people ask, and I, I was listening to a podcast, um, Shield of the Republic, and they had on two China experts who who have a new book they were taught they were they were talking about called Danger Zone. And it's kind of about the US and China, what happens in the next decade or so. And they discuss how it really does seem like China's peaking. And they're peaking earlier than a lot of people assumed. The pandemic probably did not help. Like let's remember the pandemic was mainly focused on supply chain issues. That was a lot of the issues we're still seeing today. And that's kind of China's ball ballpark there. You know, that's kind of what they are involved in. And so to see China struggling is actually not surprising when you think about what their economy mainly does. Also, travel is not obviously going well. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I sure would not want to go to China right now because what happens if I tested positive for COVID? (laughs) That would not be fun. And so it seems like China's, at least as of now, obviously things could change. They could bounce back. But it seems like as of now, China's economy is peaking or peaked. And As we've seen in the 20th century, a peaking power sometimes can actually be more dangerous than a rising power. And this goes back to that Thucydides trap idea, is that China was the rising power. Pretty much my whole lifetime, China's been the rising power. But it looks like they're they're peaking. And when you peak in high school, sometimes your 20s can be tough. And I, I don't really know what's next for them. But sometimes a peaking power is more willing to lash out, cause problems. And... It seems like the window of expectations around maybe when China is going to take Taiwan or try to take the island of Taiwan keeps shrinking. You know, even back prior to the invasion of Ukraine, so right around the new year, people thought, oh, maybe within the next 10 to 15 years. Then, you know, Russia invades Ukraine and people are like, oh boy, it actually could happen sooner. Let's give it five. Now, after the military exercises, after Pelosi's visit to uh, the region, it's seeming more and more like it could just be more and more inevitable in a year or two years. Like I've heard estimates of even 18 months. And 
This seems a lot like World War II Japan. Peking Empire starts lashing out, becomes more aggressive. Sometimes the leaders want to consolidate power abroad so there's no internal divisions, which I know is definitely an issue with China, especially based on what's happened with the lockdowns. So that's something to think about. And we always talk about in public policy windows of opportunity. You have to wonder if the war in Ukraine obviously is a window of opportunity or do they see the United States also in, de in decline maybe as a time to take Taiwan? It, there's, there's a lot of questions here, but you kind of wonder how the U.S. and China would interact with each other if both have peaked or are waning. And from what I understand, a war would not be inevitable, but something more like a bitter rivalry that could end up in something heated. And that's what the Shield of the Republic podcast talks about. And it's with Hal Brands and Michael Beckley, two experts, and basically in their book, Danger Zone, The Coming Conflict with China, they just say that it could be kind of a, I, I mean, I guess you could say kind of like a Cold War, or at least we can use what we've learned from the U.S.-Soviet Cold War experience to see how we are supposed to work with China here. But they put out a good point. They're like, China is fundamentally different, and they want to put forward a fundamentally different way of life and way of politics out to the world. China's trying to basically construct an alternative world order that kind of opposes and comes against everything the United States and its allies stand for. And one of the examples they give is that China wants autocracy. China is more of an autocratic country than a communist country in a lot of ways. Also, there's something to always clarify is they've embraced capitalism over and over again. It's just they've never embraced democracy. And examples of that are that China does seem to prop up autocratic governments around the world. They support or protect them in Africa, in the Middle East, in Asia, Putin. China wants a world that allows strong autocracies to flourish, and they want a system that controls people. And that is just not what the current world order stands for. And also the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, sees democracy as a threat to it because it would delegitimize the entire political structure that they have at home. And I think that is part of why they want to basically spread their vision of government because basically if their people at home start valuing democracy or wanting democracy or movements, it'd be bad internally. So they're trying to project what they want to the world. And the United States obviously wants open markets, democracy, even if our democracy is struggling. And it is a problem because we are seeing democracy on the decline around the world, the growth of a liberalism. And part of me could see countries like Hungary or Russia or Brazil buddying, buddying with um, China because even though they're technically democracies, they seem to not have the same values that um, you know classical democracies do. And so the question is, as China maybe gets a little more desperate and a little like a little more long in the tooth and starts acting out, what do they do? And what happens when both powers, the United States and China, see the other party's political ideology as a threat to their own? It seems like there's just a window of opportunity for China and the United States, and I just wonder what's next. And even though the military drills have ceased after Nancy Pelosi's visit, you just wonder does China, does Xi try to take Taiwan as a legacy goal or as a, as a statement? Because 
they know that their window of opportunity may be closing. And I think there's a lot of questions there because we are seeing two countries who could be on the brink of some sort of tensions, and you just don't see how they don't, I guess, because I think the United States, as it's waning, also would be more likely to lash out as well, especially if you had leaders that are a little more um, volatile, because we'd probably be willing to do what we can to protect democracy around the world as well, protect our allies that keep us safe, and China will do the same, and I just wonder what happens with that. So anyways, we're going to keep this episode a little shorter today, but uh, have a great weekend. Uh, Just think about it. You know, it's it's one of those things that I, I just wonder. Anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, YouTube, Podbean, Spotify, all that jazz. I'll be back Monday. Have a great one. Bye-bye.